Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Dr. Uma Naidu is a psychiatrist and a professional chef. Her first book was published over here in the UK as The Food Mood Connection, and in the US as This Is Your Brain on Food, where it was a bestseller. She joined us to talk about her second book, which has just come out in the UK, How to Calm Your Mind with Food. Her interviewer, Kirkland Newman, is the editor of Mind Health 360, a free head-to-toe guide to mental health. Kirkland is also the presenter of the wildly successful podcast, The Mind Health 360 Show, which you can find wherever you're listening. Here are Kirkland and Uma. What made you decide to write this book, firstly? My first book, This Is Your Brain on Food, which in the UK was called The Food Mood Connection, really was an overarching review of nutritional psychiatry looking at the different mental health conditions the foods to eat and the foods to step back from. But then COVID happened and my practice really evolved to really be seeing all ages, all demographics of individuals suffering with anxiety. During the first part of the pandemic in spring in the United States of 2020, a medication called sertraline, the trade name is Zoloft, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, went on shortage in the United States. First time in my career, and this was due to new prescriptions for anxiety in new individuals, not continued prescriptions. And then a very important paper published by The Lancet informed us that anxiety has increased by 25% since the pandemic. So it actually was mirrored in my clinical practice of what I was seeing. And I felt that, again, where we also know that data shows us that about 70% of individuals never actually speak to a mental health professional, that it is so important for people to have solutions that are easily available in food since we eat every day, sometimes several times a day, most of us do, that these are providing a solution right now home, right by the foods that we eat. So that became really important for me to bring forward to provide a hopeful message for individuals struggling with anxiety. That's fantastic. And one of the stats in your book, which I found particularly amazing, was 33.7% of people will suffer from an anxiety disorder in their lifetime, which is a third of the population, which is huge. And also the fact that 29% um, anxiety disorders have been increased in children between the years 2016-2020, which is huge. 
And also you talk about response rates, which are only 50-50% remission, 25 to 35% remission, and then response rates of 50-50. And then you say overall, only about 75% of people get better on conventional treatment. And so I imagine you were, as a practitioner, really keen to find other ways to treat anxiety. And then the final piece that I wanted to talk about was that, you know, there is a huge link between anxiety and comorbidities such as diabetes, chronic complex illness, cancer, and higher rates of mortality. So it's really, really important. So why did you go from being a conventional psychiatrist to being a nutritional psychiatrist? And, and why are you so passionate about food and how have you found it's helped you in your practice? The reason that I really started to evolve my practice in general psychiatry was that food has always been an important part of my life growing up uh, culturally, spices and eating fresh foods and, you know, watching my grandmother prepare foods as a child. I uh, kind of somehow didn't want to go to nursery school and preschool. I wanted to spend time with her because she was so much more fun. But that also really influenced my ideas about food. I would see her pick fresh vegetables from the garden, prepare meals. My grandparents would eat lunch with me. And my mom, who is a double-boarded physician, now retired, uh, would you know she'd pick me up at the end of the day and I'd go home. But during the day, there was this amazing immersive experience. And to entertain me, my grand's, grandparents would teach me things like yoga and meditation. And, you know, there were a couple of Ayurvedic practitioners in the family. So I'd, you know, see what ashwagandha was uh, as a child. So there were these very strong influences. And I realized when I began training in mental health that we were being taught really important and life-saving medications with devastating side effects, but no one was asking or informing individuals, well, what, what are you doing in your lifestyle? You know, uh, how are you eating? Are you exercising? How is your sleep? And that really was a very big gap. I started to pursue it based on interaction with the patient, really seeing that the power of understanding something about nutrition was so helpful in changing his behavior. And I pursued it further and further, went into the research, decided, you know, that I needed to round out my own education and had the opportunity to found and direct the only freestanding clinic at an academic teaching hospital in nutritional and metabolic psychiatry. And so I've had the, the privilege of really working in that clinic, which led to actually, uh, to some extent, my first book, but also just being able to work with people and see in real time the intersection of the research, but also the clinical impact of these changes in people, people's lives. And that's one of the things I love about your book is you really mix the research. Every single point that you make is, is beautifully referenced. And then you also illustrate it with clinical case studies. And I think the combination is very powerful. Now, in terms of the substance of the book, one of the things that really struck me is that, you know, when you think diet or what to eat to calm your mind, you don't necessarily, you know, you, you think about the food, but there's so much more that impacts how food affects your mental health than the food. And so you talk about the gut, you talk about the immune system, you talk about inflammation, you talk about the metabolism. And those are sort of the five key areas that I picked out. And can you sort of, in a nutshell, tell us, starting with the gut, why is the gut so important? What can go wrong with the gut in terms of anxiety, in terms of not absorbing or digesting the food? 
how is the gut such a key part of managing our anxiety when it comes to diet and nutrition? So the gut is definitely one of the mechanisms we understand. I like to say the gut-brain connection explains that food-mood connection. And I like to, to unpack it for people by saying, you know, when you have a headache, it's usually somewhere in your neural tissue. But what do you do? You know, you don't apply something to your head. You actually usually take a headache pill. You have a sip of water and you swallow it. And you hope the pain goes away. But have you ever thought about the fact that you're swallowing something, yet it's acting somewhere else in your body, as applies to several oral medications that we, that we swallow or take by mouth? In a similar way, and in a much more complex, uh, with a number of complexity of interactions, the food that we eat interacts with the trillions of microbes in our digestive tract in the microbiome. And the breakdown products can be helpful or harmful to the gut and as it gets broken down and as different products get formed, like short-chain fatty acids or toxic polysaccharides, depending on the foods that we eat, ultimately, because there's this gut-brain connection, there is an ecosystem between these two organ systems, and it will ultimately also affect the brain. And that's how we are starting to unfold these symptoms in mental health. The gut and brain originate from the exact same cells in the human embryo. They divide apart and form two separate organs, but they remain connected by the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve. And 24-7, 365 days a year, the vagus nerve is transmitting bidirectional communication of um, neurotransmitter signaling. So there's this communication. And then we get to understand that 90 to 95% of serotonin and the receptors to serotonin are in the gut. So there, there are several more complexities around those interactions and how serotonin reaches the brain and all of that. But this is meant to convey that food can have a very powerful impact because the food that's being digested is interacting in the same environment. When it comes to things like inflammation, if we go back to the foods and how they're broken down, days that you're eating a healthy meal, there are positive breakdown products like short-chain fatty acids. But if you're eating at fast food restaurants all the time, and eating foods that are very high in sugar and other less healthy foods, the breakdown products are very toxic and start to set up inflammation in the gut. And inflammation is now being seen as one of the underlying factors for conditions like anxiety, depression, even cognitive disorders and more. So that is another way that food is very, very powerful because if we're eating a diet that is pro-inflammatory, in other words, causing inflammation, you are then seeing, and I see this in my clinic all the time, an uptick of mental health symptoms. So those are two of the mechanisms. And in the book, I go through explaining that 70% of the immune system is in the gut and how the immune system comes into this, and then how metabolism impacts on mental health. So it's, you know, a lot of, if you're not like me, you'll want to read that first part, which is outlining the problem in the world around anxiety and these high statistics. But then, you know, it's moving on to the solutions and the protocol. Absolutely. And I think that's all, you know, it's very important. I mean, just to stay a little bit more on the causes, because I, I found this section absolutely fascinating, was, you know, we know that not just serotonin, but also GABA and dopamine, the key sort of motivation and calming neurotransmitters are also very dependent on what's going on in the gut. And in particular, you mentioned Bifidobacterium adolescentis as being key to forming GABA. And 
So the you know it's so complex that all these different microbes I think play a role in these different neurotransmitters and then as you mentioned also short chain fatty acids which are very important and which I think if I'm not mistaken are sort of made with fiber so you need the fiber from from the foods in order to make these short chain fatty acids you also mentioned brain derived neurotrophic factor being a key component of what goes on in the gut and that is you know the capacity of the neurons to regenerate um, especially in the hippocampus i think now in terms of the the interaction between this sort of gut what can go wrong i mean you can have leaky gut you can have gut dysbiosis how do those then cause anxiety so when we take it back to break down products of the less healthy foods those are very toxic to the gut environment they are pro inflammatory they um, start to damage the single cell lining of the gut. And over time, you develop a condition called leaky gut. But you also then develop an imbalance of the microbes in the gut environment. So the unhealthy microbes take over from the good, positive microbes that are actually helping heal inflammation, helping with antioxidants, helping with lots of other things, and, and usually breaking down um, foods into short-chain fatty acids. So when these negative, nasty, less healthy microbes take over, they start to damage the lining of the gut. And often, this doesn't may not happen immediately, but it happens over time, your gut becomes inflamed. And this is very often when I see an uptick in symptoms like anxiety because of the damage, these pro-inflammatory products and toxic products become part of the circulatory system. We know that the gut and brain are an ecosystem, so it can also ultimately lead to inflammation in the brain or neuroinflammation. And this is very closely linked with the development or uptick of a mental health symptom like anxiety. And it's very powerful to see how dietary adjustments can be one of the factors that helps someone feel calmer if they start to pay attention to how they're eating, what they're eating, when they're eating, and really almost, you know, do a little bit of a cleanup of some of the foods that they're eating. And so inflammation in the gut essentially can also cause neuroinflammation, so activation of the microglia, which are the inflammatory neurons in the brain. And is that all mediated via leaky gut. Is that how it works? It's one of the mechanisms. It's one of the mechanisms that we understand. So in nutritional psychiatry, the mechanism that I share most often is the gut-brain connection because it's very, it's almost once people understand this connection, it really helps to understand that there is this gut-brain connection and there could therefore be a food-mood connection. There are several other mechanisms that are still being researched and continue to be researched, but this is the one that really has gained a lot of attention and helps us blend the research with the clinical. That's fascinating. And then the other thing that you say in your book, which is fascinating, is that it really is a two-way street. So what you eat impacts your brain, but what you're feeling impacts your, your gut. And so you mentioned a fascinating statistic, which is after two hours in a stressful situation, it can totally change your gut bacteria. And so I've, I found that very interesting. So is it you know, what is more important? Is it what you eat or is it how you feel or it, presumably it's both? But, but how do you as a practitioner <laughs> deal with that? 
You know, firstly, I think uh, it is it is a combination of both. But I deal with it by making sure that people understand the mechanism, because by understanding the mechanisms, they can adjust uh, even their responses to things. By knowing that the gut microbes, you may not feel it or see it in in your your behaviors or even changes in your body immediately, but the gut microbes are highly sensitive. And they are reacting within a couple of hours of, say, an argument with your boss at work or stressful situation in your life. But when people understand this, they they learn very powerful tools because my my method of helping people calm your mind with food is actually a holistic and integrated approach. So food is the cornerstone and is the pillar of the work. But a breathwork exercise, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, mindful eating, spending 10 minutes of time outdoors to allow for vitamin D production, um, hydration, taking an exercise class that you enjoy. All of these things really work together to help someone feel better. So if someone's in a stressful situation and they're having an argument or uh, difficulty with their boss, I'll teach them a breathwork exercise. I'll have them learn some coping mechanisms that may help reduce that stress response because we know those microbes are going to be responding. So that emotional factor becomes really important. Different forms of psychotherapy are hugely important and critical to this work as well. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33% with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market and I loved what you said, actually, about looking after your gut in the same way that you brush your teeth. It's sort of a daily practice. <laughs> you have to really yes. every day make sure that you breathe right, that you exercise <laughs> right. And you also talk about the gut microbes as, as shifting from minute to minute, from hour to hour, depending on the sunrise, on the sunset, they have their own circadian rhythms. And so it's a yes. whole microorganism in there. And another crazy statistic that you mentioned in your book is that sort of 99% 
of our genetic makeup is actually in our in our guts. It's not it's external to ourselves. It's in our our gut microbiome. So I found that fascinating is, you know, there we have all these crazy things living inside us that have their own sort of life, but determine a lot of how we feel. So in terms of inflammation, because, you know, that is so key and you talk about that a lot in your book, um, not only in terms of physical health and complex chronic illness, such as cancer and diabetes, um, heart disease, etc., but also in terms of mental illness and anxiety. And we're finding more and more from based on your research that not only can inflammation lead to depression and cognitive decline and neurodegenerative issues, but also anxiety. So what are the key things that really cause inflammation? I mean, you've talked a little bit about it, the gut, but, but you know, there are other things as well. I mean, you mentioned bacterial and fungal infections that don't get better. You've talked about autoimmune conditions exposures to environmental toxins obviously there's the exposure to unhealthy foods and stress but you know talk a little bit about why inflammation is so bad and what causes it so one of the things that i focused in on the book we know that inflammation is multifactorial but i think the most remediable factor is how we eat because we're in control of that uh, we can choose the foods that we eat. We can we can choose the foods that we step away from and cut back on, and that is why the way that we eat or our nutrition is such a powerful tool that we can change. Um, I always like to say you have the power at the end of your fork because you can decide whether you eat, you know, potato chips and um, an ice cream versus healthier foods and a healthier meal, and that you slowly adapt how you're eating. So. The foods that are most problematic are the ultra-processed foods that I know people understand are very bad for physical health, like you know, type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiac disease, but ultra-processed foods are very, very damaging to the gut, and they are very problematic to our brain health as well. So ultra-processed foods, processed foods, junk foods, and fast foods are, are problematic. Another category are the highly sugared foods. So here we are talking about added and refined sugars. We're not talking about, say, you know, the natural sugars from something like berries. And these, again, are problematic to our gut microbiome, to our the setup of inflammation, etc. Another category are the older artificial sweeteners that are things like diet sodas or diet cool drinks. And diet, you know, diet foods marked sugar-free or low sugar often are pumped up with artificial sweeteners, which are very problematic. In addition to all of these is the category of the unhealthy fats, the hydrogenated fats and trans fats in certain foods that are shelf-stable, the cakes and pastries that last on shelves for a while that are not necessarily baked that day. They need some sort of preservative to keep them lasting that long, and those those ingredients are actually very problematic to the gut. So there are different ways that inflammation may get set up, but one that we have control over is the foods that we choose. And that's why I feel it's powerful for people to know that. Understood. And then one thing you say also in your book is you talk a lot about metabolism and its role in anxiety. And you talk about how anxiety is really a byproduct of disrupted metabolism. And you say that metabolic disorders represent one of the most serious threats to health in the modern world. 
And so how do we manage that? Is that a question of when we eat? Is it a question of blood sugar management? And how do we optimize our metabolism so that we have less anxiety? So optimizing our metabolism goes back to much, much simpler things than we often realize. It's really cleaning up the diet. It's really adjusting for, say, habits that we might have picked up or you know, started to engage in during COVID. You know, my patients talk about being in lockdown, which wasn't that far away. It feels like a lifetime ago, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago. And people began doing things like, you know, let's watch a movie in the evening and let's have ice cream every night. Let's buy more cookies. Let's, you know, eat eat differently. But some people just having a glass of wine or two every night because unlike their usual schedule when they would have a glass of wine on Fridays when they went out for dinner, now everything was in lockdown. So a lot of people's habits change. Not everyone, but some people. And and, and stepping back from those habits, adjusting, moving to a healthier version. In my book, The Food Mood Connection, I have a recipe for ice cream made from bananas. And I will often teach this to my patients who are overly indulging in ice cream every night and say, you know, there are ways that you can get your serving of fruit. You can even make this chocolate flavor with cacao flavanols, a natural source of cacao um, or extra dark natural chocolate and still enjoy something that you feel you were looking forward to. So there are ways that we can really adjust how we eat, because a lot of those foods, especially, you know, what's called the Western diet or the standard American diet, are, are problematic to our mental health, because they are disrupting our metabolism, and leading us to be on the edge or developing metabolic syndrome or abnormal metabolic factors or type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance. So making these adjustments and being aware of them become really powerful tools that we can use to our mental health advantage. That's great. And then another thing you talk about in your book is the fact that there's a lot of research on timing of food around anxiety and in terms of how you can manage the timing of when you eat, fasting, etc. What is your view on fasting, intermittent fasting, as it relates to anxiety? And what is the research around the optimal timing if you're trying to deal with anxiety? So with the gut microbiome, it, it really is like a thumbprint. So I find that the reactions and responses in different patients have become much more precise and personalized. And the same rule may not apply to everyone. Some of what I know anecdotally from my patients when they are trying out intermittent fasting, um, their GP or their primary care doctor is aware of what they're doing because they, they're using a different eating pattern. But some of them will say, you know, I have less brain fog. I'm a little bit more alert in the afternoon. But not everyone has the same response. We don't have enough research around intermittent fasting and specifically in different mental health conditions. What I noticed that my patients with anxiety have had is that they, when they are used to fasting and it's something that works for their body, they don't get up hungry, they are having their first meal maybe at another and they're having an early dinner and then they're resting overnight doing whatever they usually do, they actually do quite well. And um, as long as it's, there's some guidance around, you know, how they eat, this becomes important. Because I also want to point out that with any of these changes in eating, we have to be really conscientious about not tapping into disordered eating. You know, I've also had 
a couple of patients who started doing some intermittent fasting under the under the guidance of their doctor and were seeing me for nutritional and metabolic psychiatry consultation. But then I come to discover that, you know, they're eating 300 to 400 calories in a three-hour window during the day and fasting the rest of the time. And I, you know, to me, this was a red flag that this was really disordered eating now from starting off with, I really want to eat healthier and adjust my diet. And I asked one of these young women, well, you know, part of a healthy lifestyle that you are trying to adhere to is also exercise. Do you have energy to exercise? She said, no, I don't have enough energy every day. So I've stopped exercising. So, you know, you you see how what has been a guidance around a fasting window can be adjusted and interpreted differently by people. So be under the guidance of your GP or your doctor so that you have a sense of how to use it because it can be very helpful uh, for a lot of people, but not everyone. And that brings me to the sort of orthorexia problem, which is people who are obsessed with what they eat and the, the, the calories and the quality, and it becomes an, an eating disorder, essentially. And there always is always that when we're talking about nutrition. That is definitely an issue. It is an issue. Now, in terms of managing anxiety, I know a lot of people will be interested in, you know, what do we do? How do we eat to better manage our anxiety? How do we look after our guts? How do we look after and reduce inflammation? What are your guidelines? Now, I know that your book is chock full of fantastic guidelines, and it gives a very specific blueprint, um, and you call it sort of UMA's six pillars of, of health. And you also have some fantastic acronyms, but just touching on a few one of the things that really struck me is that, you know, there's so many debates around diet and nutrition. You know, do we do Mediterranean? Do we do ketogenic? Do we do low carb? Do we do low fat? Do we do vegan? Do we do vegetarian? Or, or... And I think there's a lot of confusion around what to eat. And so it would be wonderful to hear your guidelines for people. I mean, based on, on what you've said in the book, there are a couple of things that really pop out to me, but, but you tell us sort of what you're key guidelines are in terms of nutrition, given all these debates? Yes. So, you know, I think there are way too many debates and sort of eat this, this, eat this, not that mentality. And I think it's very confusing to people. One of the chapters that I most enjoyed writing in my book was chapter 12. And what I do in this chapter is I talk about the different dietary patterns and how you can adapt that toward anxiety. And the main purpose of writing that chapter was that whether you are on a ketogenic diet or using intermittent fasting or intuitive eating, whether you're interested in the Mediterranean eating pattern or Mediterranean diet that has a significant amount of evidence behind it, we can help you adapt it to what you enjoy eating. Because I think that that, in my vast clinical experience, works much better than me coming on and saying, you know, I think you should give up these five foods and eat these five foods. People don't want to feel restricted around their food. And they are already struggling with, I'm a firm believer that most of us know what healthy food is. But it's very hard to change our behaviors. It's sometimes very hard to make those choices. Therefore, we need to have some motivation to do this type of work. And that motivation for me in my practice comes uh, to my patients from being able to recognize, you know, I am eating that extra bowl of ice cream every night. I am drinking that extra glass of wine, or I, I sort of stopped exercising 
because my work schedule changed and I really should get back to that. Something that's changed in their life is a very important starting point to start to unfold this. In the book, in part two, I go through macronutrients, micronutrients, talk about bioactives, do, you know, really give, lay out the different types of foods. And then I talk about how you can adapt any diet from Mediterranean to ketogenic to suit you because I feel people need to be flexible. And the moment that you say you can only eat a certain diet, you should only follow this is when in my practice, uh, my clinical work, that I have actually had people not do well because they can't sustain it. So this becomes hugely important, being flexible, being open to what someone is enjoying eating, but then advising them that, you know, instead of French fries or potato chips every day with dinner, how about using an air fryer and making, you know, um, a different type of like a carrot, a, a fry from a carrot? or a zucchini, which can be air fried to create that crispness you enjoy, but from a vegetable that is less, you know, less calorie dense. Sure, have those potatoes, uh, you know, as part of your diet, but don't eat them every day. So it's adapting that to really suit the individual that becomes hugely powerful. Um, and and that's where I've had the most success in my practices, allowing people that flexibility. And so would you advise working with a nutritionist for, for most people if they can? I mean, because, you know, it's sort of personalized medicine. Would you advise looking at each individual, their lifestyle and also their dietary needs? Do you do lab testing to figure out if there are any deficiencies in, say, micronutrients? Yes, I, I do all of that. And, you know, nutritional psychiatry is still a growing and developing field. We don't have enough clinicians doing this work. I'm trying to change that by the educational programming that I've set up at Harvard and actually on my own website just to help train people and help them understand the concepts around this because I, I think that people are looking for this kind of help. In the short term, absolutely, consulting with your GP, working with a nutritionist, having a sense of, you know, using my book, um, This Is Your Brain on Food or The Food Mood Connection, using Calm Your Mind with Food as a guide to actually go through a protocol, a list of foods, a shopping list and recipes can be a starting point for you. It can be a starting point for you to see the power of how you can eat differently and what difference that can make to your mental well-being. Absolutely. And one of the things I also love about your first book, This Is Your Brain on Food, is you talk not just about anxiety, but about depression, ADHD, concentration. So many kids are on ADHD meds, and there's so much that you can right. do with food and with supplements as well, which I think is so important as an alternative. And in terms of the, one of the things that really jumped out at me was that, you know, you, I love the way you, you sort of take a bird's eye view of all these food debates and you say, actually, it's really not about whether it's low fat or low carb, it's about the quality. So you need a bit of everything, but you need it to be high quality. So in terms of fats, you need high quality omega-3s, for instance, you don't want trans fats, you want minimal saturated fats. For the carbs, you need more complex carbs as vegetables because what people probably don't realize when you think of carbs, you think of pasta and potatoes and and pizza and bread, but ultimately, you know, broccoli and lentils are carbs, right? That's right. And and that was the whole purpose of the part two of the book, um, 
sort of giving people just a landscape of what the different foods are, what the different micronutrients are, and what do we mean when we talk about a carbohydrate. Uh, you know, there's been a revision in thinking around saturated fats. A very important paper was published at the beginning of 2020, which was one of the most cited in the uh, journal, the American um, Cardiology Association. And it really re-looked and revisited saturated fats. So, for example, you know, I think that having a, if, if you are able to get grass-fed beef, you know, having that a couple of times a week or once a week is okay. It's what, it's the quality of the food that you're eating, the quantity of the food that you're eating, but also what you're eating with it. So a nutritional psychiatry anti-anxiety plate should really have a lot of those cruciferous vegetables, those green salad um, components, colorful vegetables, which are could be fresh, could be cooked, could be roasted. You want a clean protein, whether that be baked tofu or the steak or chicken or a great piece of salmon. Um, and then, you know, your healthy fat from something like avocado or olive oil, and then making making up the plate in a way that really has all the different food groups. Remember, the vegetables give us fiber. So legumes, beans, any type of vegetable, any type of fruit, and whole grains actually give us fiber, and fiber is what nurtures the gut. And on that nutritional psychiatry plate, rather than the old food pyramid, you know, what I'd like people to do is have a healthy grain, have quinoa, you know, cook a little bit of barley, have something, but don't have that be the major component of your plate. Rather be satiated and enjoying, you know, the cauliflower, the Brussels sprouts, the cabbage, the the lentils, the beans, whatever it is, those green salads as part of that plate, because those are not high calorie, but most importantly, they're nutrient dense and they're satiating. And these are things, foods that will help your metabolism along because you're eating fresh whole foods um, most of the time. And, you know, can by the way, things like broccoli and cauliflower can be frozen as well. Just make sure there's no added sauce or syrup or sugar or something else, but you don't have to buy it fresh and cook it, you can actually use it frozen and steam it or roast it and have that be part of your plate as well. And it's it's interesting because this whole idea of carbs, I mean, one of the things that struck me in your book was that the, the, the importance of carbs. And so all these people who are eating these low carb diets, it's not really, you know, you need carbs because you need the fiber essentially from, from the carbs. And the fiber is absolutely essential to your gut microbiome. And, but I think people get confused because when you say low carb, it's really, you know, you shouldn't be eating pizza and white flour and sugar. Every day, every day. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So, but you should be eating all these wonderfully rich, dense, complex carbs. And then in terms of the protein also, I mean, you know, I, you yourself is, if I'm not mistaken, are a vegetarian. But you talk a lot about the tryptophan being a precursor to serotonin, which comes from poultry in particular, but also some vegetables and, and soy products. But how, what would you advise vegetarians in terms of getting the, the right proteins? Mm -hmm. So uh, tryptophan also comes from things like chickpeas. So, you know, poultry is only one of the sources. And I am vegetarian, to be clear, not because it's a it's a choice about one diet versus another and making a stand. I actually was raised in a vegetarian family. So I've only ever, ever eaten vegetables. And that was kind of part of how um, 
just part of how my life was. But I've also understood that when you're vegetarian, there are ways that you need to make up your protein. There are where you get your sources of uh, carbohydrate. And so, you know, things like bread, pasta, white flour can be very, very tempting. But really leaning on those satiating vegetables, uh, whether you roast them, steam them, um, do a, you know, an oven bake, whatever it is that helps you to get your vegetables in become hugely important. I'm a fan of non, um, you know, well-sourced um, organic non-GMO tofu. I think that edamame, tempeh, these are great sources of protein, beans and lentils are great sources of protein. There are many, you know, top athletes that are vegan, which is in addition to being vegetarian, vegans or plant-based individuals, uh, even exclude things like dairy products and honey because they are associated with an animal source. So the fact that there are many elite, uh, elite athletes who have been vegan and can sustain their energy, there is obviously a way that any diet can be adapted to the right person. It depends on that person's microbiome. It depends on what they're eating. So I think that if you are plant-based and you don't consume any animal products, you might want to look at things like nutritional yeast or vitamin B12 supplement. If you don't consume any seafood, you might want to look at a vegan supplement that supplements the omega-3s from another source besides seafood. Uh, you might want to think about all of those. You might want to consider things like vitamin D, um, ask your doctor to get that tested because in cooler countries in the northeast of the United States, many people may be deficient in vitamin D because of our level of sunlight. So these things you know, are important things to have checked out. And I, I'm a firm believer that whether you, you know, predominantly eat meat, there can be a healthy way that we can teach you to eat more vegetables along with that. If you only eat seafood, there's still ways you can eat lots of salads and vegetables. Every, every one of those diets can be adapted in a way that is good for you. Got it. That's really helpful. And then before we get to questions in a couple of minutes, and there are a few questions coming in here, just you mentioned the key micronutrients because you talk about the micronutrients, you talk about the micronutrients, and you really break down the key micronutrients for mental health, being the B vitamins and C, D, E, zinc, magnesium, calcium, iron, and you know the importance of getting those. What do you do, though, if you can't absorb your food properly and you're not able to to really manufacture those micronutrients how do you address that well if there's a reason that you can't absorb these nutrients then you need to be speaking to a doctor about either your gut health or, or a functional gastroenterologist who can help you figure out what the reason is that you're not able to absorb these uh, because if your body is otherwise functioning well that should not be an issue. There are obviously specific conditions where people um, cannot absorb a certain nutrient, and those are highly specialized. And uh, um, a specialist involved in that nutrient deficiency needs to be involved. But for the most part, for you know, for the rest of us who are maybe just need to make adjustments to our diet, it's much more about eating the whole food versus a processed version of it. An example of that is eat the orange or eat the apple, skip the store-bought apple juice or orange juice because that has the fiber removed and a lot of added sugars sometimes. So it's just thinking about those whole food principles as often as we can uh, becomes a, a really a great pillar of how to, how to develop your anti-anxiety eating plan. 
And then in terms of one of the key things you mention a lot, and in fact, a question has just come up about this, is about sugar um, and, you know, avoiding refined carbohydrates and sugar and processed foods, which can be incredibly anxiolytic. And so the question, which even I'll, I'll just ask anyway, because I think it's a good one. How do you handle it if you have sugar addiction? How do you break that? Right, right. So I think that if you know if you are struggling with uh, with something that is otherwise a sugar addiction, then working with a practitioner to learn um, how to eat differently, how to substitute berries and healthier sources of sugar for um, you know for the refined sugars that so if you're eating candy and um, sweets and and chocolates and and lots of biscuits and cookies all the time and you know ice cream or whatever it might be or drinking sodas and cool drinks then has to be a way that you figure out stepping back from that and some of that is behavioral principles some of that is um, working with the right therapist it's substituting those foods for better versions of them it's understanding the craving cycle um, and so it's a more it's a more complicated nuanced conversation with a trained practitioner who can help you um, it's it's very easy for us to say oh let's just stop eating sugar it's very hard for people to do Understood. And that's super helpful. And then, so just there are a couple, there are a few questions, but I just wanted to ask you one other thing, um, which was about this whole, the ketogenic diet has had incredible results in terms of bipolar neurodegeneration, and there's a lot of research that's going on with it. How do you ensure though, that you get enough fiber? Because it tends to be very high fat, sort of medium protein and very low carb. How do you, and, and you say in your book that you're, you seem to be more comfortable recommending a Mediter Mediterranean diet, which has more research and is probably easier to implement well than the ketogenic diet. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, given the extreme interest at the moment in psychiatry around the ketogenic right. diet? Right. So I think there's definitely a place for the ketogenic diet. I think it also depends on how and who is using it. I just don't know that it's a long-term approach for mental health. I think in the short term, I've written about the ketogenic diet like five years ago in my first book, um, which was written in 2019 and published in 2020. There's an entire section when you discuss conditions like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia on the evidence behind the use of the ketogenic diet. Um, I think that we have to we have to still personalize that to the individual in front of us. Perhaps someone with bipolar disorder can use a ketogenic diet, but are they living in a um, state aided uh, group home or residential setting where food is provided and they're getting um, loaves of sliced bread and peanut butter? Versus, are they an individual who can have a personal coach, a personal nutritionist, a personal chef preparing their meals? balancing their micro and macronutrients, counting the carbs for them, and then presenting them with a delicious meal, that is a very different situation. So it has to be for the right individual in the right setting, and it's not necessarily sustainable in the long term in an ongoing way, because the longer term uh, effects are to some extent not known, although they have had positive impacts on certain symptoms. Clusters. So I wouldn't I wouldn't exclude the ketogenic diet. I just think that a clean keto diet can involve those uh, low uh, low calorie satiating fiber filled vegetables like cauliflower, uh, 
and doesn't have to just be eggs, bacon, and protein, which is how it tends to be co- conveyed on social media. Um, you know, butter, fat, uh, steak, and uh, eggs kind of thing. And and that's not always the what healthy what people who are eating a healthy ketogenic diet are eating. It is it may be components. It may not be the only thing. So I definitely think there's a place for it. Um, I don't know that it uh, is something that is new. It's been used for epilepsy centuries ago. And the Atkins diet is just the ketogenic diet with a different name. So, you know, it's been around and uh, certainly written about it and researched it. And I think it's important to consider for the right individual. But I think that more often someone can actually uh, follow the Mediterranean diet and be much more flexible around whether they eat, you know, whether they're entirely plant-based, whether they eat poultry, whether they eat seafood or whatever else they might be. It's more modular. There's a great question here also um, from a nutritionist, and she says, I'm sensitive to oxalates, so I eat a very low oxalate diet, which has helped with my health. As a nutritionist, I'm frustrated when people recommend foods such as spinach, almonds, turmeric, tea as being healthy. They are for some, but not for people like me. Are high oxalate, lactin, and histamine-containing foods addressed in your book? Now, I'll let you answer that, but I do know that there's a fantastic table in your book, which is the first place I've ever seen it, and I've done a lot of reading, that talks about lectins, saponins, oxalates, phytates, and tannins, and it's brilliant. But I'll let you address that because it is an issue. So, So thank you for that question. You know, my books are very inclusive. So I try, it's not possible to cover every single uh, dietary need or, um, or uh, say, some, some elements of a food that may not agree with someone. I'm a big proponent of turmeric, but I'm very well aware of the scientific evidence behind it. It is not for everyone. It can stimulate bile acids. It can cause problems in some people, but none that I've seen in my clinical practice. A simple thing is, you know, I talk about spinach, but if you've heard anything that I've said in the past, I will say that, you know, if you steam spinach gently or boil it and add it to a meal or even then even add it to a smoothie, it actually, uh, and this is based on scientific research, lowers the oxalate levels considerably. So sometimes it's what you do with the food to adapt it to what your specific needs are. My plans and my work and my research of is always adapted to the individual in front of me. So I think that that, uh, I cover as many of those things in my book. And yes, the short answer is yes. There's a lot of information in the book about those, uh, about how you can adjust to cook or prepare certain foods to, uh, to adapt it to your diet. And I mean, I think in terms of the phytic acids, I've always heard that if you soak the grains and the nuts and the seeds and the legumes overnight, that really reduces the the content of these anti-nutrients. So soaking them overnight, rinsing out the water, making sure that they've been in the fridge, and then uh, baking them in a really low temperature oven, really, really low, because you're almost slowly, you're really trying to get the moisture out of them because you've had them soaking to remove as much of the phytic acids as you can. And then once they're dried, uh, they usually are much, you know, much less problematic for individuals struggling with that. Excellent. So there's another question. Um, when experiencing high levels of anxiety, as you've mentioned, our gut can easily be influenced. And in my circumstances, sometimes it really closes it down, causing me not to be able to eat for a certain period of time. Do you have any advice to follow in this particular case? 
So, you know, if the anxiety is so severe that it's causing you not to eat, that is a problem because, you know, you need nutrition, you need to be hydrated. And if you're so anxious, and I've had this happen where your anxiety is so uh, so severe that you can't even drink your water during the day, that's, that becomes an issue. It might be that in that situation, you need to see a GP or a doctor, a prescribing psychiatrist for medication that helps you treat the initial symptoms and helps you start to get eating. And then when you start eating, you know, start to start to follow the plan around the healthy nutrients that help fend off anxiety. But to me, uh, if it's so severe that you can't eat, uh, it's a clinical symptom that you need to be seeing a professional. Uh, while food can be extremely helpful to anyone, um, that is a, a, a symptom that's a little bit more serious and one where, you know, I don't want you to become dehydrated. So I'd say suggest speaking to doctor and when you're able to eat, then using the healthy foods from the book to help your anxiety. And then another question, uh, what are the other general benefits of any of fasting, not with specific regard to anxiety? Intermittent fasting has a huge body of evidence for improving things like autophagy, which is just healing of the body. Um, it's helpful for many, and there are, big, there are many doctors who are very big proponents of intermittent fasting. I think there's a really solid body of evidence behind it. So if you were trying to do intermittent fasting just for your physical health reasons, if it works for you, you're under the care of a physician um, so that you're not getting into a three-hour eating window with 300 calories a day. And there are very many positive ways to use intermittent fasting to help your health. So I'm, I'm a big supporter of it for the right individual. I guess my question with, with regard to intermittent fasting is sort of the cortisol levels, because when you fast, it can increase your cortisol levels and your adrenaline levels. And so you have to balance. If you have, um, you know, sort of a, a sensitive nervous system, can can it actually have an adverse effect because you, you know, it, it increases your stress hormones so do you have to be careful in terms of intermittent fasting if you are somebody whose HPA access is a little sensitive? And that's why I've said all along, it may not be for everyone. So you, you have to assess for yourself uh, what the response and reaction in your body is. That's why I've said many times on this conversation, you know, be working with your GP or clinician or doctor or prescriber so that so that they can help identify those issues. And if the if if fasting is putting your body into stress, then that's not for you because that's really disrupting a different aspect of your bodily system that's not helping you. So fasting does not work for everyone. Understood. And then another question, is there a relationship between the food we eat and OCD? OCD, of course, being um, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a subset of anxiety, really. Yes, there's an entire chapter in the Food Mood Connection, also called Same Book, This Is Your Brain on Food, on OCD and the, uh, the research behind the foods uh, related to that. And finally, another question. Um, I was wondering, given that anxiety often manifests from stress, could your guidance this evening also be described as an anti-stress diet, or would that be markedly different from what you've referenced today? And there is a whole section in your book on the difference between anxiety and stress. Thank you. So the short answer to the question is, with some nuances, you know, the principles of what I'm talking about is how to lower your stress and anxiety 
in your life. There are there are nuanced descriptions and explanations for how we define these terms, and you'll find those in the book. But essentially, calm your mind with food is using nutrition, nutrients, bioactives, and a lifestyle approach, which includes things like a healthy, ex- you know, healthy lifestyle exercise, hydration, mindful eating, a mindful practice, uh, mindfulness practice to help you. So yes, I, I definitely think this these principles apply to lowering your stress, and and I think will be helpful. And then, so we have two more minutes, and I just wanted to sort of summarize and wrap it up. What's been a fascinating conversation, sure. and your book is absolutely chock full of brilliant information, and highly, Thank highly you. recommend it. But just we were talking before about you have this wonderful acronym in your book called Calm Foods. But you just if you could give us just a sort of summary of your Calm's um, approach, which is a great acronym, and what that means sort of in a nutshell for eating for anxiety. So um, looking at the so what I did is I pulled out some foods from the book that I hear most often about, and the C is for vitamin C and extra dark chocolate. A is for ashwagandha, um, L is for liquids, because I want people to remain hydrated. And I also talk about calming teas in the book when I uncovered some research around different teas that help with calming beyond what many people uh, know as, as chamomile tea. There are other options. M is for magnesium and S is for spices. So these are just, in a nutshell, some of the very many foods that I describe or food groups that I talk about in the book. Uh, you'll hear me discuss it on podcasts and go into these lists, but it's it's really meant to be um, a che- almost a little bit of a cheat sheet to think, what are the things I can, you know, if I'm going to the supermarket and I don't have my book with me, what are some things I can try to remember to buy that will be helpful and and then you'll find longer lists and a shopping list and, and a protocol in the book. And uh, I hope that you'll uh, try it out and, and let me know if, if it has helped you, helped your anxiety. And then just finally, I think there's some wonderful, uh, really good detail in the book on following an anti-inflammatory and antioxidant diet, because I think, you know, we've touched on how important inflammation is to mental health. And you have some great guidelines on how to lower inflammation through food and how to increase um, antioxidant uh, sort of nutrients in your diet. And also you talk a lot about cruciferous vegetables and the importance of them. And, and you just have some really wonderful, very, very clear guidelines in your book, which I think are just fantastic. So. Dr. Naidu, thank you so, so much for your time. And um, let's hope that everybody can follow this anti-anxiety diet. Goodness knows we all need it. And yeah, really thank you so much. And thank you to the How To Academy as well. And thank you for everybody who's been here tonight and um, highly recommend your wonderful new book, How To Calm Your Mind With Food. So thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you to the How To Academy as well. This episode starred Dr. Uma Naidu, and it was presented by Kirkland Newman. It was produced by Georgia Attlesey, and I make the show with Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.